The book of Genesis is the story of beginnings. Within its pages we meet Creator God, are introduced to mankind in all his glory and his shame, and get the first glimpses of the rescuer, Jesus Christ. You're listening to a sermon series on the first four of Genesis 10 stories by Pastor Stacy Potts. The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Today is kind of a momentous day for us. I'll say this before I get started here. Because today is our very last day in the text of Genesis 1 through 11. Hey! Yeah, there you go. Thank you. Thank you. Very last day. We're not completely done with the book yet. I'm going to come back once we get into Macomas. We'll do a, probably a week or two of wrap-up on it, just a conclusion to the overall series. But this is our very last day of working verse by verse through this passage. It's been about a year and a half. I think we started in June of uh, 2011, and it's taken us all this time. And it just so happens that we get to go out on a bang this morning with a genealogy, Right? Yeah, yeah, you're excited. They say always uh, you should leave people wanting to come back for more, and it's not going to happen today. Sorry. So what we're going to do is we're going to read this genealogy together, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. If you will, look at verse 10. Moses writes, These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpashad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpashad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpashad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpashad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ru. And Peleg lived after he fathered Ru 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he fathered Sirig. And Ru lived after he fathered Sirig 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sirig had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sirig lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Let's pray. Lord, it is hard to believe that this is the end of this time in Genesis here. It has been a a long time. I sincerely hope that it has been a blessing to us all. I know I will never read this book the same way ever again. I thought I knew it before I started, and I realized that there was so much I didn't understand about it. Today, Lord, we're coming here to this last story that we're going to look at in Genesis, this fifth Toledot. And my prayer this morning, Father, is that we will be able to see this with fresh eyes, that you will allow us to put out of our minds all of the distractions of this past week. There have been so many, all of the burdens that we have brought into this room this morning with us that will make it difficult for us to read this the way you want us to, to understand it the way you want us to. I pray, Lord, that you will help me to preach it in the way that you would want it preached, to try my best to do justice to what Moses has intended for us here. And as always, Lord, I come now and I ask that your spirit will take your word and apply it in whatever ways he needs. 
that you will help me not to get in the way of what it is your word is trying to say, that you will take these feeble notes of mine and use them, that you will take the study I put in this week and use it, anything that's wrong, strike it from this morning, strike it from my mouth, strike it from our ears. Help us to meet with you today, Lord. That's what we need more than anything else. And so we come and we ask your blessing on our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Over the uh, past year and a half that we've been in these 11 chapters, I've had a number of you come up and ask me, why just Genesis 1 through 11? In, in other words, why did I end it where I'm ending it now? Why not go further? Why not have covered less? And there was actually logic put into it. I didn't just randomly uh, pick that amount. Basically, what you have in Genesis, as we well know now, is 10 stories, right? And by the time we're done with today's message, we will have looked at five of the 10 stories. We'll looked at half of the book. The first half of Genesis, basically it's, its overarching goal from the, from the larger perspective of what Moses is doing here is he's trying to get us to Abraham. Okay, we're starting with Adam and he's trying to get us to Abraham. But once we get to Abraham, which happens in chapter 11, verse 27, you see that's where the next story begins. Then the story really slows down. The story gets much more detailed, and from that point on, it's only following a very few number of individuals up until they go into the land of Egypt. As again, you've got to think about this from Moses' larger perspective from the, from the five books that he wrote. And so we're going through these first five stories so that we can cover half of the book, even though it doesn't take up half of the book. That's the reason we picked it. And the first half of this story ends on a genealogy. Now hold your thoughts there and consider something from my perspective for a moment. As a pastor, my entire job is spent week in, week out, sitting at a desk, studying, basically, okay, with all the other things I do. I put a lot of work into it. Some weeks I get to put in more than other weeks. Some weeks that shows more than other weeks. Uh, but you, you spend a lot of time working on these sermons. And as a pastor of a very small church where I don't have a lot of influence in the larger world, the vast, vast, vast majority of my preaching and teaching occurs in this room. In other words, I don't hardly ever get to reuse anything I do. On rare occasions, I get asked to go speak somewhere else. And whenever that happens, I always you know, go through the file, find something I've done before, and I reuse it because it's just easier, to be honest with you. I never get to reuse things. If I tried, you guys would catch on to it and, and bust me for it. But today is an exception. Today I get to reuse part of a sermon that I've already preached on here in Genesis. And the reason why I get to reuse it is because this passage that we're looking at here in Genesis 11 is almost identical to what other passage that we looked at already. Does anyone remember? Genesis chapter 5, very good. Genesis chapter 5, they're genealogies, both of them. And as you look at both the content and the, excuse me, the purpose and the structure of each genealogy, you'll find that they're, they're almost the same. Which means that when I sat down to study, guess what? I, I asked all the same questions. When I was working through things, I looked at it in all the same ways. Granted, the content is different, the names, the dates, some of the, the details given, they're all different. But everything else about what I did was exactly the same as when I studied Genesis chapter 5. And so as I'm sitting there trying to figure out, well, am I going to preach this? I mean, it's a genealogy. How many ways can you preach it? I thought, well, let's just go back to the structure I used then. And so what I'm using today is the exact same framework that I used in Genesis chapter 5. It is absolutely no different. If you go back after today and listen to the sermon on Genesis 5 and then you listen to today's sermon, 
identical in terms of the questions we're going to ask, the issues we're going to look at, the things that we're going to try to, to understand. Everything in terms of the framework will be the same. Thankfully, though, the content will be different. And I don't really feel bad about that because, well, you don't really have a choice. You just have to go with whatever I do. When I preached on Genesis 5, I began by mentioning to you three common misconceptions that people have about genealogies. Do you, I was going to even use the same jokes, but I decided against that. Do you remember uh, the three misconceptions? Number one is most people think they're boring because we read them and we're like, some of you were falling asleep even as I was reading it there just at the very beginning. We just look at these things and we're not really interested in it because we don't we don't really understand it. And that's part of the problem. What I, what I explained to you last time is that to really get a genealogy, a biblical genealogy, you have to understand its purpose. If you don't understand its purpose, then I agree with you 100%. They're boring. There's nothing in it that looks interesting to me, but if we get the purpose, maybe they can uh, become actually quite fascinating. The second misconception is that they're linear. And if you've forgotten what I meant by that, it means in a line. In other words, I'm referencing how we think of genealogies today. How we think of it from me to my father to my grandfather to my great-grandfather. And in a line, every generation as far back as we can go. That's not how most biblical genealogies work. Some of them do, but not all of them do. Some of them skip around. They'll go from a child to his grandparent and leave dad out completely. Why? Who knows? Some of them don't make any sense at all in terms of how they're arranged. And so we have a hard time processing these kinds of passages of Scripture. However, I would simply inform you or remind you, whichever the case may be, that when it comes to biblical genealogies, again, it all comes back to our purpose. If the author's purpose is to show you all of the important people in someone's line, then they'll skip folks that they don't consider to be important. Or if their purpose is to group people by where they lived or when they lived or some other feature, they'll do that. It's fine. Everybody understood that when it was being written. But we want to take our understanding of how genealogies work and make the text fit into that when it's really not the case. And we just have to be aware of that. The third misconception that people have is that they're unimportant. And I said at the time, and I would repeat it today with just as much conviction, that I think that this one is the least admitted to, but the most common. It's not just that we're bored with them. We just think there's absolutely no value here. And so I showed this verse, a different translation of, of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, that I said many people inherently believe when they read that passage and they think about genealogies, that there can't possibly be anything profitable for us in a passage like what we read today. We just immediately dismiss it off the table. We're not even going to think about it. And yet, this isn't what the Bible says. The Bible says that all the scriptures are profitable, every last one of them, and are useful for our teaching, for our instruction, for our training in righteousness including a boring genealogy like the one here in Genesis chapter 11. And so these are the, the three most common misconceptions that people have about genealogies. And from a sermon perspective, again, like I did last time, I have to be able to address all three as I work through this with you. I think I was able to do that back in Genesis 5 by following a particular framework. I asked and answered three questions of the text that I consider to be 
the most critical when you're approaching a genealogy, probably of any sort, but particularly one like we have today. And so we're going to do it again. Nothing different, same three questions. Are you ready to go? Let's jump in. Number one, what is the purpose? We always have to start by thinking about the purpose of the genealogy, if you're really going to understand it. So got to start here. How do we go about figuring out the purpose of a genealogy? Well, there's two ways you do it. You do it by looking at the context and the content. How is Moses using this particular genealogy at this particular point in Genesis? That's the context question. And then what does he include in that genealogy that gives us some understanding of what it's all about? Okay, that's the content question. And after working through those questions, I came up with three basic purposes for this particular genealogy. First, it's here to connect the story of Noah to the story of Abraham. Because that's the context we find it in, right? Just most obvious of all. It comes right in between Toledotes 3 and 4, which deal with, with Noah and his descendants and what happens there after the flood. The next story that's going to come is, is the story of Abraham, or Terah, really is what it says there in the text, but it's really about Abraham. And so this particular story is nothing other than a genealogy that's tying the other two stories together. It's acting like a bridge. Number two, it's here to show us some of the dramatic changes that have, that have occurred in the world after the flood. And I'm getting this idea, and we're going to look at it more in a few minutes, so hang on for a second here. I'm getting this idea from the fact that Moses has, I believe, purposefully repeated the structure of what he did in Genesis 5 on the other side of the flood. Okay, he did it before we got into the flood. He's doing it again after we got out of the flood. The fact that he's repeating himself on both sides tells me that the ideas are connected, but there's incredible differences in the two. And so it leads me to understand that part of what I think he wants us to get here is he wants us to be able to compare and contrast. See what it was like before? See what it's like now? Notice what's changed. He wants us to see this. Third, it's continuing Moses' focus on this one family line. Now, every now and then up to this point, Moses has given us information about other people, you know, random folks that have showed up in the story. But generally speaking, the story that Moses has told us to date has been following the trajectory of one family, one line from Adam to Seth, from Seth to Enoch, from Enoch to Noah, from Noah to Shem, from Shem to Eber, and from Eber now to Abraham, if we continue to understand more of that. He's trying to show us this one line, and that focus on this one line is going to continue all the way through the end of the book, really all the way through the rest of the Old Testament, and, and that's no accident. Because ultimately, it's through this line that we're going to get to who? To Jesus, okay? You understand that. And so when I ask the question of what's the purpose of the genealogy, I answer it this way. It's to connect the story of Noah to the story of Abraham in such a way that we can understand what's changed in the world and we can continue following this one main line. That's the purpose of the genealogy and it has to impact our understanding. Now, here's question number two. What are the features in this genealogy that are important to understand? Again, you have to understand this component as well if you're really going to get the genealogy. And there are, again, three features that deserve special attention. First, we have a pattern 
that is very similar to what we saw in Genesis 5. Do you remember when we went through Genesis 5 and we noticed there was a pattern in the way he gave the information there? Okay? You see it again here. This genealogy is going to cover ten individuals from Shem up to Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And just like with Genesis 5, you have a pattern that's followed almost every time. The pattern is broken into two parts. Number one, when A had lived X years, he fathered B. Number two, and A lived after he fathered B, Y years, and had other sons and daughters. Okay, that's the pattern. Of the names listed, almost all of them will follow this pattern. And even with the couple of exceptions, they still kind of generally follow the pattern. However, guess what? We need to understand what the exceptions are. Because those exceptions stand out because of the pattern. And you see two exceptions here in the text that I want you to notice. The first exception is with Shem. Because Moses adds one little detail when he explains uh, or gives us the information about Shem. He simply points out that Arpashab was born two years after the flood. That's it. Other than that, it's exactly the same. Now, why provide us with that information? Why, why give us a specific time frame on, on when this kid was born? Well, I think that what he's doing here is he's trying to keep the continuity of the larger story together. He's, he's tying us back into the past. Okay? This, this happened after this event that we just finished reading about. Okay? That's one. The second exception is with Terah. And Terah's spot in the genealogy follows the first part of the pattern and then stops. You, you see it here uh, in the text. Excuse me, you see it here in the text how he says that after he had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And then there's nothing else given. And that reminds us of how the last genealogy ended, right? In Genesis chapter 5. In Genesis 5, right at the end, it says that Noah had lived 500 years and he fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then it stopped. And what happened after he told us that about Noah? Where did the story go next? Noah. He was... He pauses the genealogy so that you can understand what happens with this guy Noah. He does the same exact thing here. Again, there's no deep hidden significance to this. It's just the way that Moses is letting us know what is coming next. And so with both of these exceptions, they they stand out because they don't follow the pattern. One connects us back into the past and the other is pointing us to to the future. You just need to be aware of that. But then third and most importantly are the ages. Of the people in this list. Now, when we were in Genesis chapter 5, I, I showed you the lifespans of all the people that were there, and here they are again. You can look at them Adam, 930 years, Seth, 912 years, Enosh, 905, Kenan, 910. The youngster in the group is Enoch at 365, and the only reason he lived as short as he did is because of why? God took him. Okay, he's gone, he doesn't, he doesn't see death. And we ask the question, I mean, can this be true? Could these people really be living this long of of a life before before the flood? Well, maybe, maybe not. We'll talk about it in a second. But now notice that the story is not reading quite the same anymore. Now you've got a much different set of numbers. Shem lives for 600 years. Arpashad, 438. Shelah, 433. Eber, 464. Peleg, 239. It's changed Quite a bit. In fact, two things stand out to me here. Number one, the ages are significantly less than they were in Genesis 5. But number two, they're on a downhill trend. 
They're going to progressively keep getting shorter throughout Genesis and throughout the Old Testament. And again, I asked the question that we asked last time, can this possibly be correct? Is he really expecting us to, to believe that people lived that long prior to the flood, and then after the flood, for some reason, it began to get shorter and shorter? And the answer is yes. That's exactly what he intends for you to understand here. There's no hidden numbers or code or significance to this. He's giving you details that he considers important to our understanding of what has changed in this world. And while we're sitting there still thinking, this is hard to process, hard to understand, let me remind you that Moses isn't the only person who talks like this. Do you remember this picture right here? I showed it to you last time. Some of you weren't here for it. This is something that is called the Sumerian King's List. Say it looks like a brick. It is a brick. It's a brick with writing on it, basically. It's about 2,000 years old. There's several of these they found. This is just one of them. Uh, It was one of the prettier ones, I thought, so I showed it to you. About 2,000 years old, which means it's about the age, uh, dated about the time of Abraham, Okay, just to put it in a, a biblical context. And what's significant about this list is that it has a list of the kings of Samaria, their names and their date, uh, their ages, broken up into two groups. Group one are kings who lived before a great flood, and group two are kings who lived after a great flood. That's how the Sumerians understood life. And when we were in Genesis 5, I pointed out to you that when you look at the kings who lived before the great flood, they live ridiculously long lives about approximate to what we see here in Genesis. Well, guess what happens after the great flood on this list? The lives get dramatically shorter and progressively go down from that point forward. Now, what's my point in showing this to you? Am I suggesting that we place our faith in a brick? That somehow the scriptures themselves aren't enough for us? No, that's not my point at all. All I'm saying to you is that Moses isn't the only person who talks like this. He's not the only person who understands the world in this way. Others understood the world in this way. The Sumerians understood the world in this way. For whatever reason, people lived long lives before the flood, and in both the biblical account and on the Sumerian kings list, it drops off dramatically after the flood. These are all features that you need to understand if you're going to get to a right understanding of the flood, which is question number three then. What's the significance for us? And in... I'm trying to figure out why we should care about any of this. Because let's face it, these details, these features, they're not riveting. They're just not. I don't know what I can do to make them more riveting than they are. I could dance or something and try to like act out the genealogy. I'll keep dying and I'll live and die and live and we can try to do stuff like that. But there's not, there's not very much here. And so we're sitting here scratching our heads as believers who are saying, okay, this is profitable. How? (laughs) I just want to know so I can understand. What's the significance of it? Well, I think we have to begin by trying to understand this from Israel's perspective. Because remember, these were Israelites out in the wilderness who are hearing this read to them for the first time. And Moses is trying to help them understand two things. Remember what these two things are? He's trying to help them understand who they are and who this God is who has brought them out of the land of Egypt, is taking them on this long journey through the wilderness to to the land of Canaan. Who, 
Who are they? Who, who is he? And so they're supposed to be learning things from this genealogy. And as I look at this particular genealogy, I see two things they should learn. First, they should be reminded, again, that sin has consequences. Now, I used this same application in Genesis 5, but I don't mean the same thing at all this time. In Genesis chapter 5, Moses followed a pattern, did he not? Of so-and-so, after he lived a certain number of years, had so-and-so, and after that he had lived a certain number more years, and he had other sons and daughters. And then there was a little phrase tacked on at the end of almost every one of the individuals in Genesis 5. Do you remember what the phrase was? And he died. Why doesn't he repeat that here? I mean, they die. That's clear. It's, it's, it's implied. We should understand it. And yet, the fact that they're so similar, but yet this phrase is missing, it stands out like a sore thumb to me. Why doesn't he repeat the exact same pattern that he used in Genesis 5? Why, why leave it out? And I was thinking about it. It's like, okay, well, in Genesis 5, what I understood there was that part of his purpose in repeating that phrase was to drive home the point that one of the consequences of sin is death. You need to understand this, Israel, that death is an outcome of sin. Well, now, on the other side of the flood story, do they need any more convincing of that? <laughs> I mean, if, if the pronouncement of death in Genesis 3 and the repetition of death in Genesis 5 and the, the reality of the death of unknown numbers of people and animals in Genesis 7 isn't enough to drive home the idea that death is a consequence of sin, then I don't know what is, okay? <laughs> I don't know that repeating it more now is going to get the point any clearer. Death is a consequence of sin. It's an aspect of God's judgment. Got it? Good. That's not what I think he's emphasizing here. Because the feature that seems emphasized here to me is not the reality of death, but the waning of life. It's not simply that, that sin is bringing about an end of life. It's continually diminishing their enjoyment and experience of it. And they need to understand this. In fact, there's a real sense in which, you know, from Israel's perspective, they can look back at these things and go, wow, that's, that's the best it's ever going to get. From this point forward, it's going down. There's, there's nothing really to look forward to here. Man's experience of life is fading, and it's not, just, it's not just that it's a consequence of sin, it's a consequence that is getting worse and worse in this world. They need to understand that. Second thing they should have learned from this genealogy is that God has a plan. And you say, well, wait a minute, um, haven't you been like repeating that a lot all throughout this? If, if, if they should have already understood that death is a consequence of sin, that's why he didn't repeat it here, shouldn't they... Also understand that God has a plan, and why does he have to repeat it here? Well, yeah, we have seen this throughout these 11 chapters. But what strikes me particularly here is this focus on this one line. He's following this line. He's preserving and working through this line, which reminds me and tells me and shows me that God is heading somewhere with this line. 
there's a trajectory again that's going some direction. He's working something out. I don't know what it is if I'm an Israelite. He's working something out that's leading in some particular direction that's going to get him to some particular end. That's going to fulfill the plan that he has for this world. He he hasn't given, given up. And as an Israelite, while I may not understand all the details of what that plan is, guess what? I know I'm a part of it. That the family he's following is my family. That the people he's choosing to work through and have a relationship with, it's my people. It's it's the group I come from. And so, God is working his plan out. In his sovereignty, he's choosing to work through the Israelites, not because they're so special, but because he has a plan. Well, what about us? What, what should we learn from all this? We're believers. We're not Israelites. We're not in the wilderness. We're in a tiled room with dolphins. What do we learn from this? Okay. Well, I think that we learn the same two things, just maybe in a little different way. First, sin still has its consequences. Because guess what? It's, it's still ruining life. Every day. I, I said to you earlier that you know, the Israelites can look back at the, these people in this list and go, wow, that was the best it was ever going to get. And I've heard it said of us that today is the best day we'll ever have. Because the fact of the matter is, is that our sin natures, I believe, continue to get worse and worse. That the power of sin in this world continues to get worse and worse. That apart from Jesus, apart from the gospel, apart from the scriptures, apart from the spirit, there is absolutely no hope for either us or this world. Which means that any hope I have of overcoming any of that, isn't found in me. And I'm reminded to look back at the only source, the only only place where I can find anything to counter this trajectory. Because sin leads in one direction only, and it's downward. It's to hell. It doesn't care about us. It promises to make us happy, that it will make us better, it will lift us up, and it is a liar. And we know that, and yet we forget it. And so we see this here, we're reminded here that sin has real consequences and the only way to escape is by turning to Christ in repentance and faith. God hates sin, we know that. He's going to judge it, and yet in his love and mercy, he sent his son. And we're reminded we have to come back to the gospel, to the truth of Christ's death for us, to find any, any victory over it. Second, though, we should remember that God still has a plan. And that plan was carried out through his son, right? Through this line that he's protecting. I already said, the story's turning to who next? Where where is Genesis going next? What guy? Abraham, okay? And then where is it going after Abraham? What? Isaac, thank you. Somebody's like, Jacob? You're trying to use the biblical genealogy approach, just skipping folks, okay? And after, after Isaac, where does it go next? And after Jacob, where does it go next? Whoa, what? Jesus, I heard that. Uh... No, where does it go after, after Jacob? Joseph, what? The 12? You're trying to take the, the safe approach. If I just cover them all, we'll be good. Judah. You say Judah? Yeah, it's actually kind of weird. Is Judah the firstborn of Jacob's sons? No, he's not. He's actually number four. There's, or, yeah, there's, he's number four. There's three in front of him. And yet, as the story of Genesis is going to develop, Moses is going to tell two interesting stories. The first story is about Jacob's firstborn. I think it's Reuben. I should have looked it up. I think it's Reuben. Who sleeps with his father. Excuse me. 
sleeps with his father's wife. That's about as gross. Sleeps with his father's wife. The second story is about the rape of Dinah. And Shechem comes and rapes her. And then, and then they, they agree to uh, this deal where he will marry her in exchange for all this stuff. And two of the boys go in and they kill everybody. And you say, well, he had it coming. Yeah, he did. I agree. But not in that way. The sin of murder in that situation was no better than the sin of rape. And so both of these two sons are disqualified, and the one who's left is a guy who by any other account isn't all that great himself. It's Judah. And you can see that this is the final direction of Genesis. When you get to chapter 49, I'm giving you all the way to the end now. We just skipped how many chapters there? Like 38 chapters to do this. You get all the way to the end, 49, Jacob's on his deathbed. And he's issuing a blessing to his sons. And here's what he says in chapter 49, verse 8, about Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the, from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Now look, I'll be the first one to say that reads really weird to us, right? Because we don't we don't talk like this. We don't think like this. And the whole concept of, of giving out blessings to your children, making one preeminent above all the others, it's just foreign to us. But this made complete sense to Israel. This was their culture. They could see in this that Jacob is giving the preeminent blessing to Judah. And yet we would understand from our perspective that it's not really Judah, Right? Because he says here to him that the scepter will not depart from you. That means that a ruler is going to come out of Judah that's that's going to reign forever. That's not Judah. (laughs) He's never a king over anything. It says that to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Not just Israel. Everybody. That doesn't happen with Judah. Who is he referring to? And of course we know. Because we sit on this side of Calvary and we understand that it is through Judah that we get to Christ. The line has continued to meet God's plan. And you might be sitting there going, that's great, but I'm not of Judah. I'm not in that line. Well, that's the passage that Wes read to us this morning. Because we have a wonderful, wonderful New Testament truth here. Everyone who places their faith in Christ becomes one with Him. Heirs with Christ. Sons of God. We become one with Jesus. That means we're the offspring of Abraham. We're in the line. We're part of the plan. We're we're already being envisioned here in Genesis in God's sovereign plan for this world that He would save us through His Son and make us one with Himself. And so I'm reminded again here that, that God still has a plan and that I'm a part of it. I've been a part of it since the very beginning. And so I hope you can see why, again, I don't think this genealogy is boring at all. 
why it's unimportant at all for us. It's here to remind us of the consequences of sin and of our hope in the Savior who came according to God's plan. Look, folks, that's it. We're done with Genesis. Apart from coming back and kind of doing a conclusion to the series, this is it. What I hope you walk away with from this more than anything else, and where, just to tip my hat early, where we're going to go in, those, in our conclusion, is that these are not just stories, right? These are stories that are for a point. It's not just history, it's theological history. It's teaching us something about God. These aren't just Sunday school tales. They're here to point us to Christ. And if we ever again in our lives read them in any way other than that, shame on us. Shame on us. Because God wants to focus our our eyes on Him and His Son. And hopefully we've done that here in this text. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we we are thankful for Your Word. Even, Even in a passage like this, which I know all of our hearts, at least mine, I shouldn't, shouldn't accuse anyone else. At least my heart comes to, and I don't get excited about it. I, I have a hard time studying this and trying to see you in this. And yet, when I look, you're there. As I look at what you have been doing throughout Genesis, how you have been working out this story, building your people, creating, blessing, I see our failure. I look at all of these things. I know that what Jesus said is right, that you, Moses wrote about him. That all of these things from beginning from Moses, are, they're about him. Because ultimately it was the death of Jesus that was the center point of humanity, the, the center point of history, the, the central point of your plan. And we have seen just the beginning of it here. But Lord, we want to understand it fully. We want to be changed by it fully. We want to be reminded that sin still has its consequences, that it still ruins life. We want to be reminded that apart from Jesus, we're not a part of this line. (laughs) Your plan is working out through it, and you have made a way for every single one of us to be a part of that by making us one with Christ. All of these things, Lord, remind us of your wonderful, loving, merciful, gracious character that you would look at us and be willing to make us one with yourself. And so, Father... Please turn our eyes to your son. Please turn our eyes to Jesus here. Help us to never come back to this book the same way ever again. May we become more like him as a result, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.